0: It's a privilege to get to bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us this week, the, the two men who normally preach to us are, are, as Chris mentioned, they're at their annual trip to summer camp. So this week and next, we're pausing our normal sermon series for a, a short two, two-week study in the Psalms. Um, so turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to um, Psalm 96. Psalm 96. That's on page 499 of your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to take that one. It's it's our gift to you. Or if you need a Bible to give away, um, feel free to take that one and give it away. But before we we read the word, um, please join me in in praying once more. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for gathering us as your people this morning to worship and honor your name. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be called by your name, to be those who, by Christ's sacrifice, have been purchased back from from our sin and death um, to know you and to worship you. So, Lord, as we continue our worship in in hearing of your word and, and the preaching of your word, I pray that you would be with us. Lord, by your spirit, help us to understand your word. Help us to give you honor as we listen. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, James Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China in the 1860s, and he's the founder of China Inland Mission. You've, you've probably heard of his exploits. He's, he's a pretty famous missionary. Um, but it's not his story I want to note this morning. It's actually the story of his, his less well-known great-granddaughter, Mary Previtt. Probably most of us haven't heard of her. I hadn't heard of her until recently. Her, uh, her parents continued the tradition of, of their great-grandfather um, by being third-generation missionaries in China. So they were um, missionaries with the China Inland Mission um, at the onset of, of World War II. So, so Mary was born into actually Japanese-controlled China, um, but Westerners there were generally left alone, um, so they continued their, their work as, as normal. All that changed, however, on December 8th, 1941. I'm sure you know, on December 7th, um, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, And the day after, Japanese forces arrived at at Mary's school door. The the United Kingdom and America were now at at war with Japan. And Mary and her classmates and their teachers were now prisoners of war. So as a nine-year-old girl, Mary was marched out of her school into an internment camp. Life there was, was cruel and, and hard. She tells the story of these years in her book, uh, A Song of Salvation at Wei Shen Prison Camp. Not a title you would expect about life as a prisoner of war, right? A song of salvation. But it's a very revealing title. Just, just as one example, the day she and her classmates with their teachers were marched into that internment camp, she remembers them singing together the words of Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, therefore we will not fear. Imagine that, being taken as prisoner of war, marching into prison, singing praises to God. How is it that these Christians can sing at a moment like this? They've been taken away from their parents, maybe to never see them again. They're prisoners of war, and and they don't know their fate. They don't know whether they'll live or die. I wonder, can you relate to Mary? Well, you've come this morning certainly not as a prisoner of war, but probably a prisoner to a million other evils. Some of us are hurting in the prison of disease. Some of us are are overwhelmed in the prison of mounting responsibilities. Some fearful in the prison of a low bank balance. Some ashamed in the prison of of besetting sin. Or or maybe just simply detached in the prison of apathy. Well, how is it in, in whatever prison we're in that we can imitate Mary's faith? Bowing in worship to God even when we're under the weight of great evil? Well, it's with that that question in mind that we we turn to God's Word, and it summons for us to to praise God no matter the circumstances. So we'll see that we worship God in the confidence of of who He is and what He does. Um, The psalmist is going to summon everyone to worship God, for He is great. And as we worship God, we're called to invite others into that worship, for He reigns. So please read with me Psalm 96. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. Amen. Well, a little bit about this psalm. We're, we're not sure who wrote this psalm. It has no inscription. You'll notice, as is often common, it's probably either David or Asaph, um, and that's likely because an adaption of it or an earlier version of it is found in First Chronicles chapter sixteen, um, verses twenty-three through thirty-three. So you can read that later. It's, it's very similar. And this is the occasion of the ark being brought into the, um, into the tent in Jerusalem. So, so David is, is singing this song. Um, but, but ultimately, we're not sure who wrote it. It's one of them. And it's adapted later for the purpose of, of Israel's worship, um, which we, we read here. To give a, a roadmap for our study this morning, we're going to look at this psalm in, in four points. Um, four points. So first, worship the Lord. And that's in verses 1 through 3. Second, for he is great, in verses 4 through 6. Third, invite the worship of the Lord, in verses 7 through 9. And finally, number four, for he reigns, in verses 10 through 13. So, worship the Lord, for he is great. Invite the worship of the Lord, for he reigns. And uh, just in case you get worried, um, our first point will be the longest. So, let's start. Number one, worship the Lord, in verses 1 through 3. I'm sure the first thing that you notice about this psalm is the repeated exhortation, right? It begins by repeating that exhortation to sing three times in the first two verses. Um, but it's not just singing, right? The psalm is filled with exhortations to action. So we see it, it exhorting us to tell, declare, to ascribe, bring, worship, tremble, and finally say there in verse 10. And, and many psalms are... are um, are prayers directed to God, right? But this psalm is, is clearly directed to the congregation, right? It's telling the congregation, those who listen, those who sing, to, to do something. It's, it's summoning them to action. And, and the first command, right, the first action he summons us to is to sing, there in verses 1 and 2. And the song to be sung, according to verse 1, is, is a new song. So, does that mean, according to, to this psalm, in obedience to this verse, we're never going to repeat another song here at Delray, right? Only new songs from here on out. Chris better get busy. No, and, and thankfully so, because I, I love um, what we've sung today, Behold Our God especially. And I know the psalmist can't mean that, because we're literally reading a song that is a repeat of what is in the Bible, right? So I already said that this is found um, in First Chronicles chapter 16. So in other words, the Bible itself repeats itself. Um, So the command, I think, to sing a new song, this command to us this morning is not necessarily to sing a song we've never sung before or or a song that is freshly composed words, but I think it means to sing, when we do, as a a, a, a fresh response to an experience of God's grace. In other words, don't sing yesterday's praises. Don't sing something stale. Sing with a new heart, a heart that is singing fresh praises. For God's fresh grace, the grace that is new each morning. And that's, that's what we've done this morning, I hope, right? Already in our service this morning, we've, we've seen that Christian worship involves singing. Um, unfortunately, though, I think many Christians uh, refer to music and worship like they're synonymous. So many churches will call their pastors worship pastors um, that lead worship teams, um, And they lead the church in a worship experience. And that, of course, implies that the part of our service that is worship is the part with the music. But biblically, worship is is much larger than just singing a song. So in both Greek and Hebrew, there are a number of words that are translated to mean worship. Um, So some of them mean to bow down, some of them mean to serve, and some of them mean to, to fear God. So we see that it's, it's both a posture, it's an action, it's something that everyone does but most people don't realize, and I think it's notoriously hard for us to, to define. What, what is worship? Well, Tim Keller, on a, in a sermon on um, Psalm 95, defined worship as this. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that in, it engages the entire being mind, will, and emotions. Let me say that again. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages the entire being, mind, will, and emotions. That's certainly something we can do by singing, but in other words, worship is about what you value, right? What in practice is most worthy to you, and and you can see that even in the English word worship, Its origin literally means to ascribe worth to something. So everybody values something, and everybody also values one thing above all other things, something that has ultimate value. And that's because God created us as worth ascribers, if you will. We are worshipers by nature. So even if you reject the idea of an ultimate deity, we all worship something. We all value something as ultimate. Martin Luther put it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So you'll know what you worship, according to Keller, because it engages your entire being, your, your mind, your will, your emotions. Perhaps the, the clearest New Testament um, scripture on this is uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So Paul, for 11 chapters, has been expounding the mercies of God in Christ. And when he arrives at chapter 12, wants to encourage us to respond to those mercies by, by worship. So he says in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul calls us to worship in much more than just singing songs, right? He wants us to present our very selves as sacrifice to God, right? That we, all that we are, given to God in worship. So clearly, worship is, is more than just singing. Yes, it includes the songs we sing as we gather together in corporate worship, but it also includes our, our prayers, the reading of God's Word, and all the other elements of our corporate worship. But not just what we do together on Sunday mornings, right? It's, it's everything that we do Monday through Saturday as well. It's what engages your heart day in and day out. You know Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So I wonder, what does, what does your words, what do your words say about what your heart values, what you worship? I'm, I'm sure you've all seen a word cloud before, right? It's one of those images um, composed of words, and the size of each word corresponds to its frequency or its importance. So imagine if I were to use this, this screen behind me to, to put up your word cloud for the week, what words would be biggest because of frequency or importance? If, if you're a parent, it's probably something like no or, or stop, um, a lot of us have moved recently. Um, we just did, so it might be pack or unpack or tired. But, but what about for you? What words would be biggest? If, if you were here last week, um, we were instructed from the book of Hebrews to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And, and Garrett told us that one of the ways that we worship God is by speaking about him. So he, he challenged us to speak Jesus' name once a day this week in a way that would make us feel uncomfortable so how did that go last week is jesus's name on your word cloud just a little bit bigger than it was the week before did it help you to see where your heart is what engages your heart other than jesus's name and let me repeat his challenge i think you should do that again this week You know, words can be faked, and our worship is much bigger than just our words. But but this week, aim again that the overflow of your heart would be a mouth that speaks Jesus' name. Well, after summoning us to sing in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist fills us in on the content of our song. So I I take the commands there to to bless um, in verse 2, to tell and declare in verse 3. To be describing what we say in our songs, right? Um, I, I could be wrong, um, but the point is that whether or not our words have melody behind them, everything that we say are t- is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So first it says we're to, to bless his name, to bless his name. God's name is synonymous with his, his character, with what he's like, um, we see this uh, illustrated for us in, in the book of Exodus. When when Moses asks God in chapter 33 to show him his glory, God replies in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And And God does exactly that. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... When God shows his, his glory to Moses, he does so by revealing his name, which is tied to his character. So God's name is his character, and the sight of it, as it did for Moses, provokes worship. So his, his name is his character. What does it mean to bless his name? Well, it's not to give him anything that he doesn't already have, right? It's simply an expression of, of admiration, of gratitude. We see this in the life of Job. After learning that his his um, children had had died and all his wealth was lost, he um, arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, like Moses, Job falls on the ground and worships. In spite of all the terrible news, he knows that God deserves to be blessed. So, for us to bless his name is both to acknowledge and admire God's character no matter what our circumstances. But he goes on, not only bless his name, but in verse 2 to tell of his salvation from day to day. A little Bible trivia for you, the first song recorded in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 15. And what's that song about? Well, in in Exodus 13, after God showed his power to the Egyptian pharaoh by ten plagues, Israel is finally freed from slavery in Egypt. So they they leave Egypt, they head for Mount Horeb to, to worship God, but Pharaoh regrets his decision, right? He pursues Israel with his armies. So soon, Israel is caught between the armies of Pharaoh on one side and the Red Sea on the other. um, And they're facing certain death. But in the face of certain death, God provides salvation. He splits the Red Sea. Israel passes through safely. And when Pharaoh tries to pursue them, the sea swallows up Pharaoh and his armies. And so we, we arrive at Exodus 15... Moses and the nation of Israel respond to God's salvation by doing what? By singing. They sing in verse 1 I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. God provides miraculous salvation, and he's, his people respond to that salvation by singing and singing in a way that announces those saving acts. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the phrase uh, cross-centered, right? So it's like kind of a buzzword in Christian publishing today. You know, we have the cross-centered life and cross-centered churches, very good things. But if you were an Old Testament believer, it would have been the Exodus-centered life and the Exodus-centered synagogue. And that's because the Exodus, like the cross is for the New Testament, the Exodus was the defining act of salvation for Old Testament believers. Book after book of the Old Testament looks back to the Exodus as the grounds for Israel's worship and their obedience. Brothers and sisters, if the Exodus prompted Israel's worship and obedience, we have greater reason to tell of his salvation from day to day. The exodus was only a temporal and and physical deliverance. Because of their continued slavery to sin, Israel was eventually kicked out of the promised land because of their sin. But thanks be to God, he has provided a greater exodus. We, because of our sin, deserve to be cast out like Israel from the promised land. But that is not what we get on the cross Jesus was cast out for us. You see, he took on himself all of our sin. And in taking on our sin, he suffered the punishment that we deserve for those sins. God poured out his righteous anger against our evil on Jesus Christ. He became our substitute. So now, by repentance of our sins, by turning away from our sins and turning to Christ in faith, we can be Forgiven of our sins. We can be freed from the slavery of condemnation that our sins deserve. Brothers and sisters, that is, is great news. Something that, that should be told day to day. This salvation to be proclaimed in our songs. In, in verse 3, he says we're to declare his glory among the nation, nations um, and his marvelous works among all peoples. What, what better way to declare God's glory and his marvelous works than by speaking of this act of salvation? God's greatest glory, God's greatest work. We should tell of his salvation from day to day and proclaim it in our songs. So, so that's number one. We're to worship the Lord. But in verse four, we see a shift in the psalm. The exhortation turns to explanation. After summoning our songs, the psalmist now gives us reasons why God deserves our praise. So, number two, for He is great. For He is great. You can see this transition um, right there in the first word of of verse four, the word "for." Um, so, why do we sing? Why do we tell? Why do we declare? It's for the Lord is great. It's because of His greatness. And and that term great might make you think of uh, Tony the Tiger's endorsement of of Frosted Flakes. You know, they're great. We use the word for the normal and everyday. So we give the descriptor to cereals, to to lakes, to walls. But when the Bible calls God great, it, it does so to the exclusion of everything else. God is great and nothing else is. He alone is great. And in these verses, God's greatness is contrasted to that of all rival gods. The resounding refrain of of every Old Testament book is the incomparable greatness of Yahweh compared to to all other idols. Uh, Moses' song back in Exodus 15 put it like this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? doing wonders? Well, we answer the rhetorical question, no one is like God. He is above all gods. He alone is great. And we, we, hear, we see here in verse 4 um, the word fear. Um, that means worship, right? So this is the fear of reverence, not the fear of a threat. Um, but some of the other language in verse 4 might be confusing to you. You might wonder, other gods... I thought Christians were monotheists. Well, rest assured the Bible isn't here teaching um, that that there are actual other gods. Right? He makes that clear in verse 5. You know, he says that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So all these other so, so-called gods are, are are idols, the creation of man's imagination and and our idolatry. Um, in 1 in Corinthians, Paul actually says that that what's behind, the spiritual force behind idols is, is demons. Earlier, we read in uh, Psalm 115, um, verses 4 through 8, the greatness of these idols. It, it said, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. These idols cannot provide salvation. They are not deserving of our songs. Idols like these are truly worthless. And that's, that's probably pretty obvious to you, right? Who today would be tempted with such silly notions to bow down to, to silver and gold? Well, the truth is not all idols are silver and gold. Paul in Colossians chapter three verse five equates greed or, or covetousness with idolatry. Have you ever considered that the Ten Commandments begin and end with virtually the same command: "You shall have no other gods before Me," and "You shall not covet" are almost equivalent. And that's because coveting or greed is is idolatry. It's desiring something so much. That it becomes more valuable to you than God Himself. Does that remind you of our definition of worship? So we can't escape verse 5 so easily. Well, we don't have any gold or silver idols in our home, we're safe. No, there are competitors to our worship of the one great God, they're the idols of our greed. Is your God your belly? Your mind, will, and emotions engaged by food? Or how about your favorite sports team? You've already got the NFL calendar placard out. Or something more tame, like comfort. When closely examined, your life really is about serving your ease, not the glory of God. Or maybe something celebrated by our culture, sexual autonomy. Well, in the face of all these rivals, God alone is to be feared. The psalmist sets God apart in in three ways, um, saying that God is is greater than the idols in these ways. So first, in verse 5, he is creator. So verse 5 says that the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. So in contrast to idols, God's power is displayed in the world that he created from, from nothing, just by his voice. All that is has God as its source. It is all upheld by God the Son. He laid the foundations of the earth, and and he brings out the starry hosts by the power of his might. He has held the oceans in the palm of his hand. He has numbered every grain of sand. This God is creator. But not only creator, in verse 6, God alone has majesty and splendor. Splendor and majesty are before him. These are terms that describe his his royal magnificence. So he rules all that he has created as divine king. All power and authority are his. No purpose of his can be thwarted, and all that he decrees comes to pass. He alone knows the beginning from the end, and none have counseled him or can teach him anything. No god is like this god. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who has splendor and majesty. But more, it says strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The sanctuary, the the temple, was was a very important part of Old Testament worship. Um, So Solomon built the the, the first temple, and it was magnificent. Huge stones, it was framed by by oak, huge bronze pillars and, and gold filigree. Um, it was a very real, physical reminder of God's beauty and strength. So I, I want you to imagine the most impressive building you've ever seen, either because of, of size or, or, or beauty. Um, for me, it would be the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building in, in Dubai. Can you remember that, that awe, that that feeling of of being overwhelmed at the foot of that building? Well, whatever building that was, like the temple, it's merely a pebble to the Everest of God himself. Solomon said, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. No, the glory of the temple was not in its stone. It was in the presence of the God who dwelt there. He is the strength and beauty of the temple. A strength and beauty revealed to his people in the very place where they were yearly reminded of their sin and their undeserving. But a temple hasn't been around since 70 AD. So where do Christians go, if not the sanctuary, to see God's beauty, to see God's strength, if not the sanctuary? Well, first, right right where we are today, God's word. It's his inspired revelation of himself. So let me urge you to not treat God's word like the owner's manual for your car, right? Left in the glove box until you get a flat. It's, it's more like a love letter, meant to be anticipated with eagerness, read with joy, because you love and want to know its author. So first we, we see in God's word, but, but second we see his strength and beauty actually in the church, and I don't mean the building, as great as this building is. It's, it's the people, the people that are the church. God once dwelled in a place, the temple, but now he dwells in a people, his church. Christians are, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And his work, the Holy Spirit's work, is to give them spiritual strength and beauty. So to be a Christian is to be born again, and that new life should reflect the holiness of God. And part of that is his strength and beauty. So we see it in his people, the church. But but third and most importantly, we see his strength and beauty in Jesus Christ. He is the New Testament temple. So when, when John, in chapter 1 of his gospel, is describing Jesus' incarnation, incarnation, he says that Jesus tabernacled among us. That's the tent that, that the uh, was a precursor of the temple. Hebrews says that this Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God, in whom the fullness of God dwells. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know the strength and beauty of God, you don't need to go to a temple. Study the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a privilege to know this Lord whom none can compare. And and not just to know him, but to delight in him, to worship him with all that we are. But if you've noticed, I've left out a very important note in the first six verses of of this psalm. The greatness of this God deserves not only our worship, but the worship of all people. So let's move to, to number three, invite the worship of the Lord. Invite the worship of the Lord. You'll see that, that right from the start in verse 1, the psalmist invites all the earth to join in this song. And then in, in verse 3, we're to, to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So even from the beginning, um, the scope of this worship, the scope of this song is none less than global. And taking a step back, you'll notice that in this psalm, the nation of Israel is not mentioned by name once, right? the psalmist has much larger concerns than his nation. And, and coming down to verses 7 through 9, um, the psalmist here is inviting those nations to worship God. And we can see that in the, the bookends of this section. So um, in verses 7 and 9, so in verse 7, um, he invites the families of the peoples to ascribe glory and strength to God. And then in, in verse 9, um, all the earth is to tremble before him. It might help us understand these verses if we discuss that word, ascribe. um, That that word he repeats three times in verses 7 and 8. The word is an imperative, um, so it's commanding the nations to give something to God. But the things that they're called to give, namely glory and strength there, they're not something that we can give God, right? He already has glory and strength. So the invitation to ascribe these things to God is an acknowledge, is a invitation to acknowledge that God already has them. In verse 8, we see that the Lord's name is, is due glory from all peoples. So every person who has ever lived, who now lives, or will ever live, owes God simply what is due his name, glory. Fame might be a good synonym for that word Glory. Um, but the biblical term conveys weight and riches. In the New Testament, it conveys honor and a, a good reputation. But, but I'm not a very big fan of those words, fame and honor, because I think they're a little bit too pedestrian, right? People can have fame and honor. God's fame is, like everything else in God, great. It is matchless. He alone deserves glory. You know, for the, for the next few weeks... Uh, Athletes from around the world are going to congregate in Rio de Janeiro um, for the Olympic Games to compete for gold and glory. Um, Personal glory, national glory. You know, I'm already checking the medal counts. I want to see America way at the top. But as great as Olympic gold is, it's perishable. You know, I don't remember the medal count from the last Olympics. With time, their exploits, their names, they'll all be forgotten. But the glory of God will be sung about in heaven forever. This is what they sing from the book of Revelation. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. All people, everywhere, and for all time, even into eternity, are called to ascribe to God the infinite greatness of his manifold perfections. We're to make public, his infinite worth. But it's, it's much more than just acknowledging that He is great. In James 2, um, verse 19, we're reminded that even demons can recognize truth about God and shudder. Mere mental assent to truth about God makes you no know better than a demon. Our acknowledgement, our ascribing glory to God must be done with love of that truth and appropriation of that truth. So our ascribing glory to God must be accompanied by sincere worship. We must value God in such a way that engages our whole being, your whole life. And as glory is what is due to Him, God has every right to demand it. This is soberly illustrated for us in in the book of Acts, In in chapter 12, um, Herod, who is called king, puts on his robe, sits on his throne, and, and gives a speech. The crowd, seeking to appease King Herod, shouts, the voice of a god and not of man. Herod evidently does not rebuke them. In verse 23, it reads, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Surely we know the judge of all the earth will do right. And he does right in judging glory stealers. Maybe not now in this life, but that judgment will come. It is promised. Well, rather than continue in stealing glory, the psalmist invites the nations to come with an offering to the courts of his sanctuary and in verse 9, invites them to, to join Israel in their worship, in their trembling before God. Let me ask you, what is it that you think you're inviting people to when you share the gospel to them? Are you inviting them to a better, more moral way of life? Maybe to peace of mind. Maybe to a sense of purpose. Well, yes, amen, certainly all those things the wonderful hope of the gospel. But all those, I would argue, are actually ancillary. They're they're secondary to what we call them to. Psalm 96 reminds us that, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What we invite people to in our evangelism, in our missions, is what we were all created to do first and foremost, give glory to God, to worship Him. As, as John Piper so eloquently put it, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. And I add, because God is ultimate. So it's our delight to not only worship this God, this great God, but also to invite everyone to join in our worship. So that's, that's number three. let us Let's see number four. For he reigns. For he reigns. I, I hope you still have your Bibles open. I want to show you a few things in this section of the Psalms. So look at how Psalm 93 begins. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Or Psalm ninety-seven, verse one. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Or flipping over to Psalm ninety-nine. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. So th- that statement, the Lord reigns, is, is really the theme of this whole section of the Psalms. If you want to continue our meditation from this morning and, and need an idea for your devotional reading this week, let me encourage you to, to study Psalms 93 to 99. That's seven Psalms for the next seven days where you'll think about the Lord's reign. Well, back, back in our Psalm, in verse 10 of 96, this present and active reign of God is to be announced to the nations. He says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And because God reigns, he says, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Well, at one time, actually, this verse was used to defend the idea um, that the earth is stationary and everything else revolves around it. Um, Well, We know that's not true. Verse 10 is not making a statement about planetary motion. It is making a statement about the stability and security that we have that is guaranteed by God's present reign. Because he rules today, we can be certain that one day all things will be made right. And that's the the gist of verses 11 through 13 as well. So, 11 and 12, we have this really odd picture of inanimate creation celebrating. So we have the heavens glad, the earth rejoicing, sea roaring, um, field exulting, and the trees singing. But, But why? Why the celebration? What would cause them to sing? Well, the answer to that takes us back to the beginning, way back. When God completed His creation... There was no disorder, no chaos, no conflict, no struggle, no pain, no death. But when Adam and Eve first sinned, God cursed them with death. And cursed not only them, but all of creation. Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Paul unpacks this for us in greater detail in Romans 8. Verses 20 through 22, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that word that, that Paul uses to describe the curse, futility, is the same word that appears all over the book of Ecclesiastes. It's as if the slime of Adam and Eve's transgression has covered the entire planet. Everything that is done under the sun is vanity, futility, because of the curse. And yes, we know that the the greater exodus has been accomplished in Christ. But as Peter in his letter reminds us, we are still strangers and exiles. That means we're still in the desert, so to speak, wandering, waiting to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And so, still in the desert, still under the curse, the creation groans. We hear of tornadoes, earthquakes, and drought. God reigns, but there is affliction. God reigns, but there is sorrow. God reigns, but there is suffering. God reigns, but there is injustice. But verses 11 and 12 imagine a day when that all will be reversed and creation's groans will be turned into songs, into celebration. And verse 13 concludes on that note, telling us that that day, the day that the curse will be reversed, the day that creation will sing and celebrate, is none other than the day that the Lord will return to judge. So, in the midst of the chaos of the curse... We know that that God still reigns, and He will come again to judge all rivals to His reign. He will judge with perfect equity, with righteousness and faithfulness. So we sing today not only for the salvation that God has provided, but for the hope of salvation that is yet to come on this day. You know that, that phrase, the Lord reign, appears in the Bible Uh, again, this time at its consummation, the consummation of the Lord's reign. The book of Revelation gives us a window into what that day, that day of the Lord, will look like. In, In chapter 19, John hears this great worshiping multitude in heaven. He says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunders, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So for those clothed clothed in Christ's righteousness, a day is coming when we will sing Alleluia, Because God's reign is consummated finally. In in just a moment, we're going to sing Joy to the World. Even though it's traditionally a Christmas song, sung in anticipation of of Jesus' first coming, it really is a perfect song for us to sing today in anticipation of Christ's second coming. You know, Mary Previtt didn't know what would happen to her in that internment camp. She could have died there. History bears out that she was eventually rescued and freed. But she could sing knowing that God reigns. Even death itself, under his sovereign rule, could not reign over her. She knew that in the end the Prince of Peace would rule with equity. Today we can sing, we can imitate Mary's faith, the faith that sings God's praises no matter the circumstances, because we know that Christ will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to rule the world with truth and with grace. So whatever the week ahead holds, let us go into it singing the praises of our great Lord and inviting all peoples to join in our song, for the Lord reigns. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise, for you are great. Lord, there is none like you. You alone are glorious. You alone deserve all of our worship. Lord, we thank you that we can worship you no matter what we come into um, today with, because you reign. Lord, you reign today, you reign tomorrow, and we know that that one day you will reign with perfect equity, judging the world in righteousness and faithfulness. Lord, I pray that we would be found in Christ. Lord, that at that day when he returns, Lord, that we would be um, rejoicing in his returning. Lord, help us to hope in that day now. Help us to sing your worship with hearts that give you ourselves. Lord, for you deserve it.